What's up, everybody? It's Ryan McCaffrey from IGN Xbox, host here of Podcast Unlocked. Welcome to the show. It is episode number 70, and it's September 7th, 2012. Uh, joining me today is Empty Chair 1, Empty Chair 2, Empty Chair 3. Everybody's out and about or busy. Mitch Dyer is in Canada getting rid of his car and vacationing, visiting his family. You heard about his, uh, his epic road trip. Last week on last week's show, where he was driving up to PAX and then driving to Canada and then flying back, and I I can't wait to hear the stories of of running into uh, Neil Patrick Harris and craving White Castle hamburgers. We'll see what we'll see what Mitch was up to next week. Uh, so and then Destin Legary is upstairs as we speak, and he is doing a live stream of Borderlands Two with Randy Pitchford, the president and CEO of Gearbox Software, the developer, the uh, which is, of course, the company behind Borderlands and Aliens Colonial Marines and Brothers in Arms and Duke Nukem Forever and a whole bunch of other stuff. And Randy is one of the absolute delights to talk to in this industry. He's a very honest guy, but he's extremely passionate. I mean, he just you, you really get that from him when you sit down with him. And so I did sit down with him earlier today and recorded what turned into a one hour and 15 minute interview. So uh, with everybody sort of out and about and with an hour and 15 minute Randy Pitchford interview in the can where we go over everything from what he was really thinking by picking up Duke Nukem Forever to uh, what's going on with Brothers in Arms Furious 4 to, of course, Borderlands to what he thinks of the next generation Xbox. We get into all kinds of great stuff with Randy. And so we're doing sort of an inside the actor's studio version of the show this week so i hope you enjoy it we're just gonna go me and randy for the next hour 15 buckle up and we'll be back with the full crew next week lots to catch up on thank you very much and i hope you enjoy the interview we will see you next week yay Joining us today in studio, very, very special guest, the one and only Randy Pitchford, all the way out from the Dallas area. Welcome, Randy. Thank you. Uh, happy to be here. You're, you're a tireless man. You were at PAX, and uh -huh. then you went home, and now you're right back out here just a few days later. Oh, that's just a small part of the story. <laughs> You've, you were in Australia seeing our Australian yeah, cohorts yeah, recently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In between Sydney and PAX, actually, I was in San Antonio for the GameStop Oh, yeah. Uh, convention. That's, that's yeah. like a big deal now. Like it's, You guys yeah. have to all go kiss their asses because they're the buyer. They're the <laughs> well, ones selling it, your games. It's not. It, it, it felt actually a little more like the opposite, frankly. But um, uh, I love it because... You know the the store managers at GameStop, they're on the front lines. Yeah. You know, and um, you know, as much as some of us might be cynical about re the state of retail, most, almost all the people I've met from GameStop are mm -hmm. gamers. And um, yeah, tastes vary, but these guys are gamers, and they actually do what they do because they love games and they want to be a part of it. And I think I, I'd much rather have someone who's a gamer True. being in that seat than just a a, a cynical, greedy kind of. You know, but w was it awkward at all? Because you know, you on the developer side of the games industry, you and your colleagues all 
hate used game sales because it's it's a it's a it's an issue I in the game world. And used game sales, I actually love it. I just think that you're uh, not you got developers should be cut in, publishers the, should well, be cut in. Yeah, I think that, I think there's a model that eventually we'll figure out where everyone gets gets a piece of it. But I think that the, it's a as a customer, I, I think you know there's some there's some neat convenience to that as an sure. option. And I also think that there are some customers that that we might be reaching through lower priced use sales that we wouldn't otherwise reach through full price, you know, customers that are on different budgets and, and, um, you know, and I think it's up to us to, to off, to, to prove the value of the retail game and to prove the value of owning it versus borrowing it or or getting it secondhand. And, uh, but, but I, I think there's still some value to secondhand stuff. I, I just, I just think that there's a model there that can work. So I don't hate it. I just, I just don't, um, you know, it, there's this other weird part of it, which is, uh, and I don't mean to interrupt you because I know there's oh, no, probably a lot no, of no. things you guys want to talk about, but I've never really talked about this before. But um, there's there's this this idea that if the value is the experience, yeah. right? Um, the moment b- before I've had the experience, whatever that experience is, whether it's like burning through a quick campaign or it's a new hobby for me, whatever the experience is, if there's value to the experience before I've had the experience, the the value, the potential value to me is at a premium as a customer. Mm-hmm. Like I want the experience, so I'm willing to pay a lot. Once I've had an experience and I've burned through it, and I'm no longer interested in the experience, then the value of repeating that experience is very low. So there's this weird kind of gap that happens if if the method to get the experience is to just have possession of this of a physical disc, for example, there's this moment before I've had the experience, I'm willing to pay a lot for it. True. And then after I've had the experience, it's almost worthless to me. So the idea of, of, of turning it over to someone for very little money uh, is actually a decent value. And that that's that's interesting because on on the creator side of it, we don't really care about the physical media at all. We care mm-hmm. about we, we we do it because we want we want to entertain. We want to yeah. create experiences, but we don't get to keep doing it unless we can afford to. So, you know, the the we have to make more than we spend. And you know, there's we're we're fortunately in a good seat. I feel I feel pretty good about how we're doing. But you know, there's been a lot of trouble that a lot of folks have run into. Studios shutting down, layoffs That's... all over the industry, and it's a difficult business for a lot of people. So I always feel for the cases where a talent that made good stuff that isn't here today, that was here yesterday, that might still be here if everyone who ever had the experience actually was able to get some of their uh, payment towards yeah. that to the people that created yeah. it. Get, get right up, get that mic right up next to you, uh, Randy, because we don't want to miss a word. I can of this. do this if so, you want. <laughs> I mean, on that note, because we're just, you know, we're not even, we're off script already, but I love it um, because this is a great topic. We'll make topic. our own script. Yeah, no, uh, so. Uh, Tell me, as from the developer side, about about retailer pre-order bonuses. Mm-hmm. Is that a big pain in the ass from the developer side, where you have to cut all this extra content to make all of your retailers happy, or is it one of those things where it it's worth it to secure those pre-orders and know that you're going to have people coming into your product on day one? Well, because from a consumer yeah, side, yeah. it gets to be a huge it's, pain in the ass. It's very confusing and complicated when you have different pre-order incentives per retailer. There. Uh, there's a this interesting. I, I'm not going to say it's unfortunate, but there's this interesting component to the industry where it turns out that pre-orders are a really good indicator of what of how your game's going to sell. Mm-hmm. So on the business side, there's a lot of motivation from the machine of the industry to 
push for more pre-orders. Uh, the more pre-orders there are, if it's an indicator, then the more sales you would expect. So, so there's a lot of there's a lot of pressure to do that. Now, in the past, I, I remember for one of our games, I think it was Hell's Highway, we had different pre-order packages per retailer. In the case of Borderlands 2, we've done a single pre-order incentive that applies to everyone that can execute. Yes. So you don't it's so the thing that kills me as a customer is the mutually exclusive thing. If I get it if I buy it from this guy, I get one thing. But if I buy it from this other guy, I don't get that, but I get this other thing and it's like I don't even yeah. know I don't even know, know the value of those things. <laughs> and so it's hard it's almost impossible for me to make a decision. So we tried to eliminate that decision. Uh, we had a single pre-order option that anyone that can execute, like any of the retailers, and most of them can, most of the bigger ones can execute, uh, will give you uh, access, give you free access to what we call the Premier Club. And on Borderlands 2, the Premier Club is what unlocks all of the pre-order incentives. Now, there is one exception um, with, with GameStop in particular, because those guys, they really got behind Borderlands and Borderlands 2. Yeah. And they made, they made an, a, a marketing investment, which allowed um, enough confidence to add a, a bit of a budget to create something. And so there's this, this thing called the Creature Slaughter Dome, uh, which is exclusive to GameStop. There's no mutual exclusivity, so it's not like if I go with someone else or something else right, I can get. Right, it's just for yeah, GameStop. It's just GameStop, and, and that content actually would never have existed if it weren't for GameStop's investment. So I actually, I, like normally I don't like pandering to a particular retail. I don't <laughs> like playing favorites, but those guys made a bet there that allowed something to be created that otherwise would never have so existed. They, they scratched your back, you're scratching theirs. It, it's... I guess so. I mean, in in a way, it really benefits them. I mean, they decided to really bet on it. They decided to count on Borderlands 2 and make it a big part of what is going to uh, help GameStop and, succeed as a business. And it seems to be a safe bet because the game is, the, the, the hype is it. through the roof. I know your pre-orders are are, are tracking, you know, speaking of, of you're your saying that's a great indicator. Yeah. You do have a ton of pre-orders. The game looks like it's going it. to be massive. I can't believe it. Right now, like I was checking, like over the past two weeks, I've just been looking at, you know, the Amazon top on Amazon.com top sellers list and the GameStop top sellers list and even, you know, on Steam or whatever. And, uh, you know, it's Borderlands 2 is number one on all of those. And, and what's weird is like, you know, Amazon has this neat thing where you can see uh, total sales for all of 2012. Mm -hmm. So you can see cumulative to date, like, because they do the hourly top list where it's updated hourly and it's like this rolling average over some period of time. Nobody knows exactly their algorithm. But they also have a uh, cumulative for the whole year and some through some odd I don't know what temporal vortex created this situation but Borderlands 2 is actually higher on that list than Call of Duty it's higher on that list huh. than Halo 4 it's higher on that list than Assassin's Creed 3 like I feel like I've just walked into some alternate dimension where because <laughs> you know when we make it when we make a game like Borderlands we know we're we're making a game for gamers we're not prioritizing the um, middle of the road kind of dumbed down yeah, the, mass market the, the, gamer. The people that buy two or three games a year. Or one game a year. Yeah. Or sometimes no games a year and you know they maybe they get one as a gift. We're prioritizing you know real gamers and ourselves basically. And to be in this world where that's what's being selected as the most interesting thing right now, I can't I can't even fathom it. You know, like Borderlands One was such a sleeper that uh, you know, it had such a long tail that I just can't even. I never imagined we'd, that this would be the seat we'd be in. Well, it's interesting that we're you know we're talking about the the, the projected success of Borderlands Two. I'm curious what you think. See, to me, it seems the Borderlands Two is the uh, 
official and unofficial kickoff of the holiday season. You know, it's the first of the real, real big blockbuster games hitting. That's kind. I think technically the industry looks at Madden as the first indicator. Well, that's a summer game, though. I mean, I don't think we can. And that's with no disrespect to Madden, but that's like clockwork. It's a summer game every year. But they they look at that as a, uh, I know the industry looks at that as as like the canary in the mine or the litmus test. All right, so, well, Madden aside. Incidentally, Madden's up this year. They had, they had the biggest launch they've ever I, had. We saw that, yeah. And they had, uh, like, I heard from some folks uh, on on the retail side from different retailers that it's as much as twenty percent over forecasts. Mm. Which, you know, I I don't I'm not a huge sports gamer. I do play the good every once in a while when a really good sports game comes out. Yeah. But I'm like really excited by that. That's that's a good indicator for our industry. Well, but but anyway, I didn't yeah, mean to interrupt. So what your I point. wanted to ask you about with Borderlands is. Uh, are you involved? I mean, because obviously, you, at this point, you've got to be thrilled. It's the way the the marketplace landscape has has shaped itself for the rest of the year, you've got a Halo in November, you've got a Call of Duty in November, you have a Resident Evil Six in early October, you have an Assassin's Creed at the end of October. Your game is uh, you're going to get that that those first dollars from people spending money over the next three four months on games. Uh, were you were you involved in that, or is is that on the two K side, and you just kind of end up going, well, that this is working out great. <laughs> well, obviously, we're involved in how we make our game and when we finish it. Uh, in terms of what the rest of the market does, no one has any control over any sure. other product. So, you know, the the lineup is that's fortunate. Um, I, I, you know, though, the, there's a the cynical side of me kind of. You know, looks at it and goes like, "Yeah, you you want to be all alone and you don't want competition." But you know, the first the first game that Gearbox ever launched was Half Life: Opposing Force, mm-hmm. and in that same month that we launched, uh, Quake Three Arena was launched, and so was Unreal Tournament, and so was the first Ghost Recon. Yeah, but you ha- you, you know had what? the Half Life name with no, you. No, it on doesn't. That. Uh, forget about the name. Three game or four games all stacked on top of each other. Right. Like everyone should have been dead. You know what? Each one of those games was great. And so each one of them actually exceeded their forecasts. That's true, but that was a pretty different era. I mean, things have changed but a lot. But it's true in this era too. And to to be objective, we can look at it from a different. Uh, we could look at a different industry. For example, uh, I don't know if you go to the movies at all. Sure, I, I do. Um, when there's a movie I want to see, I'm in that theater. And sometimes there's nothing I want to see. And sometimes things stack up. For example, a few years back, we'd have situations where you know the next Lord of the Rings movie was happening in the same week as the next Harry Potter movie, mm-hmm. and guess what? We'd go and see both. But the prior six months, there wasn't anything that any of us really wanted to see on a massive scale. And so it was, we didn't even go yeah, into the go. theater. And that, that's, that's the nature of the entertainment business. It sort of expands and contracts based on the kind of the, the quality of the promises that are being offered and how well those, those promises captivate the, the, the imaginations of, of an but, audience. Well, to finish the point, though, it's still, it's got, you've got to be thrilled because Halo, the last couple Halos, Microsoft has taken this strategy of we're going to go in September or we want to get out there first. For Microsoft and, has always had either a, for this entire generation, there's yes. either been a Halo game or a Gears of War game mm-hmm. uh, starting after, like every September. Every yeah. September there's been an Xbox 360, there's either been a, a Halo or a Gears of War. And there's not this And this, this is year. the first time that hasn't so happened. So, you, I mean, as you guys are developing the game and you're, you're projecting out and you're thinking, okay, we think we can have this out for the holidays 2012, you're probably thinking, well, there's probably going to be this Halo 4, there's going to be or a Halo game in September. So then when there's, when, there, when there's not and they decide to drop in November and you're like, we got September to ourselves. Yeah. That's got to be yeah, a we, thrilling thing. We 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 talked about that 
possibility. Christoph and I talked about it. Uh, Christoph's the president of 2K Games, and and our thoughts were, look, you know, if Halo does show up in September, that's so that's what it. we expect. You know, that that's the default expectation. Um, I'm co we're confident in our game. We think we think we'll find an audience. Um, we think the people that love Borderlands will be thrilled with what we've done because we we've really blown it away um and we think that we're when a lot of new people show up i think halo will do great whenever it shows up um so we decided to just put our like that that's when it was going to be so that's when the game was going to be yeah. done and ready so let's let's just put our claim in early let's not worry sure. about it let's not operate with fear and we announced our date relatively early we were one of the first ones of the holiday games to just yeah, put say, your flag in the ground here's where we're coming um and uh, and and it turns out that you know Halo. I don't. I think that their date is not a function of timing strategy. I think it's more of a function of when when they can. Yeah, when um, they can and, get it done. And, and, and honestly, I'm I, as a fan of Halo and someone who who's really looking forward to that game. Um, I'm grateful for them to make a choice that prioritizes what the game. You know what the game needs to be. Always. So if if they if it means that. Okay, so they break their September trend. That that actually is really important to me as a gamer. Um, I think both games would have been fine if both would have come in September. Um, and I think Halo I will do fine when it yeah. comes. So I love I love talking to you because we've already had a great 16 minute conversation, and I'm now just now getting to the first <laughs> question on my list. So be careful, you'll get down three <laughs> questions at this at this rate. Well, we'll see how it goes. I've, uh, fortunately, we literally have you all day. We have big plans for Randy. Yes. Randy's here. We're doing a lot of Borderlands 2 stuff with him. Um, by the time this podcast airs, uh, you'll have already hopefully seen our IGN Live, our live stream. We're going to be playing an hour or hour and a half or so wow. of Borderlands 2 with Randy. Um, That's you'll like a, 30, a, a 40th of the game. Yes, <laughs> it's a big game. We've, uh, you're gonna, Randy's going to be on Up at Noon this week, so turn into our YouTube channel, on uh, our Start channel on YouTube on, on Monday. Uh, for when that show goes live, and but now for right now you are all mine here on Podcast You've Unlocked, and I appreciate it. I'm trapped. So I've been wanting to interview you for a while, okay. um, and you know you've just been busy. You, you said yourself before we went on the air that you're not even taking a vacation. You're busy. You got a million things going on, and I love my job. Yeah, I know you like, do, and that's why me, I love to you. me. To me, what we do is is vacation. <laughs> well, like, and and when, you when have. Uh, I'm happiest in the world when I'm part of creative processes and we're making awesome stuff happen. And that's why, you know, without kissing your ass too much as you're sitting here, that's why I just legitimately respect you because you have a big gamer score, you legitimately <laughs> play games, you're not just a dude in a suit looking to profit off of the video game industry. It you is actually... the greatest medium our, our planet, our species has ever devised. Like, it is not just entertainment that comes to us we yeah, participate absolutely. in the entertainment there's no better entertainment medium so on the planet this is a perfect lead into my next question you know you're you're showing your passion and i want to ask you i kind of want to ask you seriously about duke nukem forever okay. for a minute okay so um you, this the backstory for those that don't know is you were in on the very very early days of de development with that game correct barely barely I, I, it, you know but you you got your start yes technically you, yes i i i was at 3d realms yes um i moved to to texas from california in 96 and was in and joined the duke nukem 3d team and i worked on uh, Duke Nukem 3D stuff. Yeah, you were a level designer, yes, right? Yeah, and I, and my my content is in the Atomic Edition of Duke Nukem 3D, and I joined uh, Alan Blum and those guys, um, Todd Replogle, 
uh, and and the other guys uh, on the Duke Nukem team and made some great friends and learned an incredible amount and that was my that was my first commercial product. Now technically, Duke Nukem Forever did start when I was still there and I but I left in '97 and uh, I left it you know second half of '97 and uh, my involvement in that was very minor. But while I was there, some of the original stakes were put in the ground, right. like he's going to go to Vegas mm-hmm. and you know, this is after the events of Duke 3d and he's like famous and rich and all yep. that. And, but the aliens come back and just those tall beats were there. Right. But the point is yeah. that you clearly as, as you know, you are just making your passion for this industry clear and you're, you're a guy that's where you got your start. So you have yes. th- you, Duke and 3d realms has in, a very special place in your heart. In obviously, some, in, in many respects, I I owe my career to Duke Nukem. And and on that note, that so that's when so Duke Nukem Forever, of course, became quite the quite the project over the years. You know, it became infamous, not yes. even famous. It became infamous. Yes. <laughs> and at one point, it looked like it was finally over. The the 3D realms had shut down. Yeah, it looked Rough like day. yeah. It just when we lo- heard about that. That was. That was tragic to us. I know a lot of people probably were on the sidelines laughing. No, no, no. But, I mean, but nobody uh, wants to, us, to see anybody lose their jobs. To us, it was a tragic day. Well, sure. I, you know, it's 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 never a good thing. And so, so it looked like that this twelve year, eleven year, whatever it was at the time. That Odyssey, was two thousand nine. That would have been twelve years yeah, after it began. It, lo- it looked like this had finally come to an end, and then a little while later, uh, it, it comes to light that that you have stepped in and you have purchased, you have acquired. All of Duke, you've acquired the whole thing. The yeah. game, the IP, yeah. everything. So yeah. what I just want to ask you sort of here is in the in a postmortem setting yeah. is, I mean, I played through the game because I was, you know, at the very least, cu- good or bad, I was curious. I wanted to see isn't, what it was. Isn't would that be. interesting? Yeah. That curiosity. I, yeah. I've, I've, I've never played a game for that reason. Yeah. Because, you know, I usually play a game because I'm, in, I'm very legitimately excited. Not that I wasn't excited yeah, yeah. to play Duke, but the overwhelming motivation for me to play through Duke Nukem Forever was sheer curiosity. Like, see what, what the hell has, the, you know, what has this 14-year thing yeah. become? And so when you come in and you decide to pick it up, uh, did, did you did you know in your, you, you looked at it, did you know it wasn't that good? <laughs> I think, it, you know, I think it depends on perspective. Um, you know, a lot of people put me on, um, you know, towing a line when I say this, but I actually like the game. I really do. Um, there are, you know, if I parse it as a, you know, one of, a, a, a narrative, you know, FPS that is a, a linear progression, you know, and I've compared, I, if I, I compare it to Duke 3D or, yeah. you know, and other games like it or things like Half-Life, not, not, and I, and when I say that, I'm not talking about whatever your particular perception of quality is, right. but in terms of its design and pacing, yes. it's that style of game. And the character and the situations are such where the things that I did when I played the content that they created and when I played through it, there were wild experiences that I've never had anywhere else and that I could never have anywhere else. I got shrunk down <laughs> to this big and I had to navigate through a burger joint, Duke Burger. Yes. You know, and I know I'm not objective because I have a certain affinity to Duke. So like sure. when I when I go to when I'm when everything's going down and I ride the elevator up to his museum and there's the Duke Nukem Museum and he's yes. like so famous in his world <laughs> and he's got his own casino and his museum has all these relics on display of, you know, all the things that we remember from Duke 3D but realized in true 3D in a current kind of engine. Like it was just special to me. And the idea 
that his th- he has a throne. Duke has a throne. And the throne isn't just like a place for him to sit. It's like how he accesses his Duke cave, which is like the yes. back. It's like all of that stuff is just so awesomely insane that I really enjoyed it. I really thought it was special. And um, I, I, I had a good time with it. Um, now, you know, do I like every aspect of it? You know, it's, it's I would have made a different game. Yeah. I would have made a different game. And I will. Uh, that's I didn't acquire the brand just so that uh, that could happen. We're, yeah, we'll get to that in a second. <laughs> but, you know, but I, I liked it. I had a lot of fun with it. So, and, I, and I'm happier living in a world where I got to play that content and, than, than being in the world where... 3D Realms just shuts down, Duke dies, and we never hear from any of that again. Right. I'm much happier in the world. And, that and I agree created. with you. Yeah, yeah I agree. I, I am. I am happy that yeah. I got to play the game. Even though, I mean, I reviewed it at my last job yeah. at OXM, and I think I gave it a five and a half or something. And it, you know, it's um, that's borderline. Like there, there was. It's it, that's that's it, interesting, right? Like, I, and reviews are subjective. Sure. I think a, a fair score is between six and eight, depending on yeah. You know, if you judge it on technical merits and all those other things. Subjectivity right. aside. Sure. You know. Um, you can't you can't rate you can't I, quantify subjectivity. I guess what I'm curious <laughs> curious about after the fact here is you know I I do as a as a as a lifelong video game player and someone who who was around to play Duke Nukem 3D and follow the whole process of this I do appreciate despite the fact that I didn't care for the game as much as I'd hoped or wanted to Expectation gap is big. Yeah, I mean, I do appreciate you for well, sure. (laughs) It was pretty awesome ride, I'll tell you. But I do appreciate that you did come in and put it out. Now, and and I think you know a lot of the the hardcore you know shooter community does appreciate you for that. Did you expect um, the reaction it got? Did you expect people to to generally? Again, with all due oh, respect, we, we to knew. generally not really like the game. Well, as- it's it's weird. Like, I mean, it sold well, and it's um, it's it's. I mean, we expected it to be polarizing. Yeah. Um, uh, there, you know, I'll tell you, it's uh, it's it's weird. I mean, I, I I know your seat, and I know the perspective you have. Um, you know, my seat looks a little different. Totally. Um, we get a lot of fan mail uh, every time we every game we release. We get a lot of fan mail, and or and you know I say fan mail, and and there's two kinds of mail that we get generally. There's people that have some problem with something, whether it's a technical yep. problem or a, a subjective problem, and they complain. And and in general, someone that is unhappy with something tends to uh, have a, a louder voice or be more likely to, to, to reach out than someone that's, that's happy about it. But on average with our games, we tend to see about three pieces of positive, uh, con, uh, contact, uh, for every one piece of negative contact. Yeah. And Duke Nukem forever was uh, astonishing to us because the people that reached us, the ratio was actually six to one positive over negative. Hmm. And that, that was weird, you know? And, and I'll tell you, like I was just at the GameStop convention yes. down there and I had, I, ha- I didn't have a single person approach me and maybe because it's me and it's uncomfortable. Nobody approached me and said, man, that game sucked. But I had more than a dozen people and these are managers at GameStop sure. approach me and say, you know what? Thanks for doing that. I had a blast with it. I don't care what anybody else says. Thanks for making that happen. And that's why, that's why we fight. Well, that's and, why we fight. You know, so, if you don't like the game, don't don't get yeah. it. But like, if it doesn't appeal to you, but like, and I, I know that there was a lot of um, rubberneckers, you know. Oh sure. <laughs> and yeah. so it's hard. It, it, it's more like if you're not buying the game because you genuinely like the promise, uh, it's more likely that if you're a rubbernecker, you might see something that makes you uncomfortable. 
<laughs> you know, um, than if you're buying something because you are attracted to what it's offering you. Yeah. If you buy something because you're attracted to what it's offering you, you're going to be, um, you're going to, you're going to be interested in that. So I think, I think those are the people we tend to hear from, but I get that there's a lot of people that kind of are, are in this memory of this, you know, 15 year long hype train. Um, and during some, uh, during a large percentage of the, you know, part when it was at 3d realms, the, the claim was, Hey, we're taking forever because this is going to be the greatest game ever made. <laughs> right. And that, that like, if that's out there, there's just no, there's just nothing that could ever exist yeah. that can make, that, that can live up to 15 years of expectation. So it's just, it's just not conceivable. When, when you go in and you look at it and you're like, okay, you know, I can, I can save this. I have, I'm in a unique position here and you, you see that it's, it's not going to be the usual, uh, very, very high quality gearbox game. Did, was well, it? You, you, you got to be careful though, because you, you, you know, how are you defining quality? Because I think the issues people had are subjective. Yes. Uh, to, so how well, do you measure somewhat. subjective quality? Somewhat. I mean, it's uh, the the game. The design of it is very clearly '90s game design. A lot of which. I suppose you could say subjectively I, has not aged well. I, I mean, I, 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 again, I, I, I think it's a matter of taste. Like, um, I, I, I still, I, I, there's a lot of games that are fundamentally along the lines of those design, yep. of that kind of design, where a character enters into a puzzle space, and whether and he'll encounter a skill test or a cognitive test using the uh, that, that 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 uses the interface. To, to you know make that test and then through overcoming that test you move on that's the game design mm-hmm. okay um, and you know I, maybe maybe I see games differently you know as a game maker maybe I parse but I, I think like I I, I I think that and also I don't, I don't think you can even we can even have a, a, a fair um, a truly fair uh, discussion I think that what matters is like to do it, you really need the game in front of you, yeah. and you need to go like, okay, where? Like when you say quality, what exactly are you talking about here? Right. Are you talking about because you think you don't think this joke is funny? Are you talking about it because um, you you didn't you didn't like? Sub, there's a, some subjective reaction because I, I can't I can only come to the conclusion that people have quality concerns based on their subjective feelings about the design or the intent or the. Um, or, or the presentation of the game. Yeah, and so, I, I know, I know that I am not objective about it because of my history with that particular franchise. Well, and nor and you sh- and I nor should you believe, be. I'm like a, I'm like a, 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 a chronic optimist. I wanted to believe, <laughs> you know, and to in, in the game, the game functioned great, and it pl- and you know, it was fun to me. So and that gets right to my next question yeah. was so when you come in, you're looking at it, was was it was was acquiring that game and uh, finishing it was it something you just felt like you had to do because no one else could? Well, there's part of it. Like, th- I think that comes into it. Um, I think there's two, there are two primary, you know, motivators from my point of view. One is, you know, I told this story once, you know, like, let's say you're in a car and there's a car in front of you and it could even be like a fast, sexy car, you know, and suddenly the car loses control and crashes and it's just a big explosion of fireballs and metal and, yeah people are bleeding. So already you've got a bad situation. Yes. Right. Um, and you're following them. So what do you do? Do you keep driving or do you stop and try to help? Okay. Now let's imagine that you're not in a car at all, but you're actually in an ambulance and you're a doctor 
you, you, and, and let's say you're not on a busy highway. You're like out in the middle yeah. of the desert. You're the and doctor there's no in this one scenario. else around. Yes. And there's no one for hundreds of miles. Yeah. It's like, do you, you let them die? You're gonna, Is you're it? gonna, you know, I, I'm not. There's no scenario where I'm gonna let them die. I just, as, as a human, I can't do that. You know, so, um, and I don't want to live in a world where there's no Duke Nukem. I think he's a uh, an interesting character that has a lot of play in him. You know, and and I think that there's a lot of fun that could be had there. And I think that you can do things with that property that can't be done with any other property. So, and I think he's huge. I think he's larger than he, he, I think he's larger than life and, um, both literally <laughs> and, uh, figuratively. And, and I think, um, and I think there's a lot of potential there. So, so because you went in and bought it, you went in and bought it with your own money because gearbox owns it, not 2k it's yours. Yeah. Yeah. That was the only way that was going to happen. Yeah. George would have burned he did. He burned his own business to the ground before he let that fall into what he believed would be the wrong hands. Right. And to him, I think, especially at the time, the publisher was, any publisher was an evil, evil entity that was only going to scorch the earth and, and, and rape your brand. And I, I don't necessarily have those same views, but um, I understand where he was on that. And I, and I think that it was, it was only possible for him to trust a developer and to trust a developer that has a particular history. I mean, so he, he, had, he was he was right to trust us because yeah. it never would have, nothing ever would have happened. And it's only, and maybe maybe the some of the decisions I make are irrational because of the uh, personal affinity I have. But that's going to lead. I'll tell you, passion drives everything. And and I and it should. And I, I love that that game now exists and we get to play it. And I love even more that. Uh, Gearbox can then now make a, a, its own Duke Nukem game. Well, and that's exactly so. You've not been shy about uh, in this interview or or in the past about you know the fact that you do own it and you didn't buy it for nothing and your yeah. desire to reboot the game. There's the the rumor of a Duke Begins like a little <laughs> little reboot. I mean, for for you know, I'm not here to try and pry that out of you because your okay. your PR guy in the corner will will uh, shoot me. Uh, <laughs> but I do. I'm curious. Where, where do you think Duke needs to go? gameplay wise in order to both be modern and entertaining but still but still be duke i think that the next duke nukem game needs to surprise and excite us on multiple fronts i think it needs to surprise and excite us from a game design point of view uh it should ha it should be inventive now it shouldn't be so inventive that it's completely wild and unfamiliar that we have no basis and, and, and foundation of to parse it but it should be wild and in, inventive enough so that there's a, a if you remember what duke 3d did to gaming the next interactivity the, the it's not just interactivity interactivity was a part of it but it, it pushed you know it, it moved um first person shooters on a, on a number of fronts it, Character. It, in some ways duke 3d was actually the the pre the 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 thing that needed to exist in order for Half-Life to be a natural evolution. I agree. And in fact, there's a lot, there's multiple people that were on the Duke 3D team that were part of their founding group of Valve that built that game. And, and, um, and I think that the next Duke Nukem game from a game design point of view needs to accomplish that same feat. Um, it, it'll be in different ways, yeah. but it needs to bring something new to the table. That's relevancy. Um, extends beyond just the mere entertainment experience that you get from consuming it. I think from a character point of view, I think that something very clever needs to be done there. We need, we need Duke to simultaneously be able to use his character to push 
us into edges that we're not totally comfortable with, mm-hmm. but to do it in a way we can relate to. Yeah. And I think that that might have been some of the subjective reactions that some people had to to Duke Forever. The Duke in Duke Forever really committed to his 90s character. That's true. It really committed to his 90s character. And I I did not, you know, there was some of that actually that made me uncomfortable, but but and I and you know, I gave notes to the to the guys, you know, the guys that were driving it, but I didn't want to be a censor. And I didn't. I, I knew that I'll have my chance. I didn't yes. want it. I didn't want it. Like yeah, I would have done it differently, but I did not. I liked it for what it was. I yeah. felt there was a certain charm to it, and there was a reflection of. Of I appreciate it. And this is going to sound hot. I appreciate it as art. <laughs> Take that, <laughs> Roger Ebert. I, be, because I know I know who created it and what what they were what was driving them. Um, but I I think that I think my treatment of that character, he won't forget his foundation, but he'll have to. He'll have to be cognizant of where we are as a species today and where society is today. Right. And he'll have to find that way to find what the new boundaries are that kind of dance around the uncomfortableness with those new boundaries, but do it in a way where we're endeared to him. The, the Duke in Forever, we are no longer endeared to. He's like a caricature. He's like Cartman. Absolutely. You know, he's like Cartman in South Park where, yeah, he's kind of funny, but he's a dick and he's never a role model. The Duke in Duke 3D back where we were back then to some, he was actually a role model, you know, in some ways, you know, it baby. Yeah. He, it's like, they're, they're almost celebrating that machoism. Um, but we've evolved, uh, as a species and as a culture since then. And, and the character, uh, embraced where he was and, and, uh, and just had fun is with it, that premise. Is it's the same way that, you know, Adam West Batman was appropriate for 1960 Absolutely. television and, and the way Nolan Batman is appropriate. You know, now you think about Batman. Think about Batman. Uh, did you see Batman and Robin oh, with I, Mr. Freeze? In the theater, and I nearly walked out. Okay, so imagine if whoever was responsible for Batman, whoever was shepherding that. Joel Schumacher, the director? No, no, right? I'm, t- I'm talking about the brand. Oh, okay. Used that experience as an indicator of all things possible and gave up there. Imagine that. We would never have what Christopher Nolan did. Right. And the character itself has a lot of potential. Yes. And so I viewed Duke Nukem very similarly. And maybe, maybe to some, you know, maybe to some people, forever is Batman and Robin. But does that mean that's the end of it? It's like no. no to me, the worthy challenge then is okay. What is, what's what's the Christopher Nolan quality resurgence that has to happen? And when you know, how, what is that? And that, that to me is a really interesting question, a really interesting challenge and a worthy challenge. And the, those that do that and offer that and deliver that they're creating, you're a hero then if you do that, it's great. Right. And it's then, great. uh, and maybe there'll be some new console technology coming down the pipeline that can help <laughs> you, uh, put that vision I, into reality. You know, there power, no more power is always nice, but I, I, I think that the, the issues there are more are not they're designed they're not going to be solved by I, I think the solution to that is not limited by technology yeah. i think the solution to that is a creative uh, a creative uh, thing so uh we're here to talk about borderlands too of course um but I, real quick i gotta ask you because this just came up the packs furious four yeah um what is going on with it it's dropped the brothers in arms name mm-hmm so the question is, the, the big question for you that, that hasn't been answered yet, does that mean, so Ubisoft owns Brothers in Arms? No, Gearbox no. owns Gearbo- Brothers Okay, Gearbox owned it. Yep. Does that, but does this, does, is Ubisoft still publishing the game? Um, we, 
haven't talked about publishing yet. I did say that um, it when it when it appears again, it will be a new IP. Okay. Um, and uh, we'll be. In fact, I do have. Some, I did say that we're going to have some things to talk about that at our community day, which is on the fifteenth. Coming so, up. So uh, yeah, September fifteenth, and that's in Dallas. And you're you're actually welcome to come to community day if you want. Um, and uh, we'll we'll have some more announcements along those lines. Um, as far as as far as publishing goes, um, uh, when we reannounce the game. Um, that's when we'll come with all of that information. Fair enough. So, so that, and, and I made it clear at PAX that what I was offering at that point was, uh, I wanted to make it really clear that the game, like I, I, I think I talked before at some point, um, how the games evolved. Cause somebody asked me like, Hey, I won't even see him for all. It's like, you know, you know, when we started that project, we really committed to, um, the design loop. And we wanted to kind of push some things. Um, we wanted to, uh, and, and we, we at, at first we unhinged the constraints enough in the kind of iterative pre-production process to allow design to evolve. And when Furious 4 was announced, you could already see that the gameplay and the, the and as a consequence, some of the style and feel had evolved beyond what we would normally expect from a Brothers in Arms game. Absolutely. And since that moment, it we it was it was continuing to evolve and it's actually gotten a lot farther and if and we realized that if we separate the brand expectation that Brothers in Arms brings from it because the gameplay evolution that we're going through is extremely exciting like really awesome like you know if you think that it was cool how Gearbox figured out how we figured out as a team how to bring in RPG elements to the shooter for Borderlands what we're doing what where that's evolving is crazy awesome and so there will be a time when you know i know right now because i i'm i'm kind of indicating hey a shift has happened there's like well what caused the shift and what does the shift mean and i I, you know i get that let's get all those questions out of the way because what'll happen later is when we announce it there'll be this whole new thing to parse sure and that'll be the discussion then it's like what is it um uh so I, i get i get that there's that transition now that now i we're not quite ready to announce it yet um and, and the the biggest reason is because it is still evolving and if if i announce it if i re-announce it again while it's still evolving there's a chance you go into strong, blizzard mode there, no, well, no there's you, a strong we'll, probability we'll never... that it continues to evolve again and then yeah. i have to do it again yeah, yeah. And so let's 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 get to let's get sufficiently far enough where when we make the promise we are committed to that promise, right? Um, and and I don't I don't want to make a promise I'm not committed to. And I know every and everyone's like, oh, it's cool. We won't take it as a promise. Just tell us what you're thinking. <laughs> but it doesn't work that no, way. No, it doesn't. I say anything, and and the, then anyone who covers it will just take the little bits out, and that becomes a new promise. That's right. There are headline writers downstairs right now, just waiting, yeah. waiting to type out yeah. what so, you say. So so I, I'm going to be very careful about that. Now, Fair enough. On on the on the you know just to clear up the brand situation. So brothers in arms is a gearbox brand. Uh, uh, and, and we love, we love what we've created there. And we, we, we have internally committed ourselves to continuing that as well. And I've also said, look, you will, there will be more Matt Baker and there will be more yeah. of the authentic brothers. In arms. Great. And it actually is. Um, and I'll, I'll actually talk more about that at community day, community day as well. Um, but it's, it, it became very clear to us that we need that, 
you know, is, we might have been, because we were, you know, kind of exploring something with Ubisoft, you know, we, we kind of felt kind of attached to the Brothers in Arms thing, even though we were exploring gameplay in a different direction. Yeah. So by, by, dis, by detaching that entirely, we, we, we are free to let that game become what it is supposed to be and meant to be and what it deserves to be on its own merits without even affecting at all what Brothers in Arms is supposed to be. Wow. And, and it, it actually is the best of all worlds. So I'm really excited about that. And that's one of the reasons why I want to talk about it. I think if you are a, if you are a Brothers in Arms fan, you're really excited by two pieces of information. One, this Furious 4 thing is not corrupting Brothers in Arms. In fact, that's <laughs> that's going to go on its own thread. And yes. two... We still we love Brothers in Arms and have some something going on there, and we'll be talking about that down the line. Well, I'm with you because when I saw it last E3, you know, a year ago, yeah. I thought that's a neat game, but I wish it weren't called Brothers in Arms. Isn't that interesting? I, yeah, yeah. I, because your the reason your Brothers in you Arms know, games are they're for all the other World War II games out there, Brothers in Arms is a very hardcore, uh, realistic tactical game. Yes. It was a it was a. Um, a niche, a niche that that nobody else was doing, yeah. and and for Furious Four, it's like, well, this game's kind of neat, but uh, it should maybe be called Inglorious Bastards: <laughs> The Game instead of sure, instead sure. of Brothers Arms. So and, I, I I have liked this yeah, news, and and yeah, so the, and that's that's the other part of it, right? So if you're if you're a Gearbox fan, the idea that we are unhinging any constraints and and exploring game design more freely, um, and letting that evolve and iterate. That 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 creates obviously lots of questions. What is it? But the possibilities are exciting. So that so that that that's neat to me too. And I, and I'll let you in on a secret. Um, Please do. The when when that announcement for Furious Four, you know, a couple of E3s ago happened, um, to me it was also a litmus test. I at that moment in time, I was already thinking it's this should not be a Brothers in Arms game, mm-hmm. but you know, our, our publishing partners were convinced and there's other people that were convinced. And so I'm like, well, there's only one way to truly find out. So let's just tell people what we're doing and, and, and we'll, and we'll let them tell us. <laughs> and, and it was, I was, I was really gratified by the response because it told me I, I was, I knew exactly what was going on. Like I was, I was really, I, I actually, it's hard to be objective when you're in it, but I, it turned out that I objectively understood exactly where we were right. and what that meant and what that, what, what that led to was us, you know, being able to, to, to do what we needed to well, do. Well, that's, that's yeah. a testament to you and the, the strength of the position that you've carved out for, for Gearbox, because if you were a wholly owned subsidiary of a publisher, you probably would not have been in a position to do that. Yeah, yeah. So That's true. But, you know, I think that the, one of the reasons why I, I, it works for us, what we do, is because what we do is driven by our passion as gamers and game makers. And we've made sure to not get ourselves into situations that compromise that strength to be in play and the, and our best partners, um, get that about us. Yeah. And, uh, well, and, yeah, you've worked with this, yeah. you've worked with the same partners, uh, uh Ubisoft and 2k or have been but frequent. We, we partners also over work with Sega sure. and, 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 you know, on the aliens game where, you know, 20th century Fox owns aliens and, you know, and we, we've worked with Microsoft and we worked with Activision and we've worked with EA and we've worked with all the guys. And whenever we've worked with these guys, the um, the best results have always come from those that get us and and you know let us do our thing and um, ask the important questions of course and inform us of their constraints so that we can work you know because we we want success for all of our partners right. um, 
and uh, and 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 it's been really it's been really neat, you know. So, and I think it's really just about being honest and communicative, um, and being transparent with your partner. And I think that's that's really the secret to our success. It, it sounds so simple, yet it seems so rare. Yeah. Uh, and for for listeners who may not be aware, uh, a little extra Xbox cred for one, Mr. Randy Pitchford, he uh, and his team work did the PC version of Halo One. That's so, right. And yeah. with some kick kick ass maps, by the way. Yeah, yeah. The maps you. you guys did. Uh, Infinity was yeah. fan, was amazing. That, you know, Matt Armstrong designed that, and he uh, he was actually the director of Borderlands One. Like, there you it, go. If you can think of, if you can name one guy that is most responsible for the game design bet that we made uh, from from an execution point of view, um, he Matt, Matt Armstrong is that guy, and mm-hmm. uh, and he built that map Infinity. Yeah. And, and in fact, one of the those maps were so good that one of them, uh, Microsoft even even borrowed for for uh, Halo anniversary last hey, year. Hey, it's all their stuff and I I'm just I was so thrilled that they trusted us and and invited us to be a part of that, you know. And and to me it was really great to play Halo on a mouse and keyboard and to play it on my PC and to be able to play on the internet for the first time. Yes. Because you know, Halo was not a, it was not an online game at oh, all. No. It was there was no online. Nope. It was a, you could play it on a LAN or you could play it local split screen, but there was no online multiplayer. And you know, we're in a world where we're, you know, going nuts with Counter Strike and stuff like that on the PC. So to be able to I'll tell you that was a difficult and and very stimulating challenge. The um, guys like Sean Reardon and Steve Jones and Jimmy Sieben, who uh, and Scott Velasquez had a lot a lot to do with that too, who really dove in there and re-architected the not just the the networking but the engine in the game. Uh, because Halo, when we got it, was designed as a synchronous deterministic simulation which is the worst possible scenario <laughs> if you're on the internet where yes. you have things like latency and packet loss and you're getting packets out of order and all kinds of odd things happen. People's connections drop or are inconsistent. Um, so we had to tr- we had to transform that entire architecture into something that is non-deterministic and asynchronous. And, and this is the catch. We had to do it in a way where the, from a customer point of view, the original simulation still feels intact. I guess they should have. They should have called you guys for uh, to to put online multiplayer into Anniver- Halo Anniversary. Then <laughs> maybe I, I actually didn't try the online. I I, I, pre- I respected that. I didn't try that. What did they have? An well, online they they just did a, a map pack for Reach. Oh, they did not. You I know, see. that was a big yeah. a big beef of mine as a as a Halo One old school fan. Was I wanted to play Halo One Halo, yeah. online, and they yeah. uh, you know the, for technical and no doubt budget and time reasons, they instead opted to. Uh, it is a hard problem. Oh, I yeah. think most most teams would have been nervous about doing that work. It's very technical, very challenging work, and um, and it it takes it takes some serious chops and experience. It, to to the credit of the, the the gentleman I mentioned, Gearbox was able to do that work for I think under a million dollars and in less than a year. Which is like that's and, impressive, and, and, and that component of the work would have been identical, nearly identical. Uh, the consoles have some different TRC kind of uh, situations and some other kind of constraints, but the the from a functional point of view, that work would have been nearly identical uh, in this in this reimagining they did wow. as it was back then, because that that part has nothing to do with fidelity. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with. Uh, um, with uh, with it, it's it's all, all under the with, hood. It's all it's all it's all under the hood. It's all to do with the simulation and how how information is is um, simulated across multiple uh, machines that are connected together in some way. So Borderlands Two, uh, 
you're shipping that game yes. in, in just a couple weeks' time. Uh, the story goes that the art team mm-hmm. snuck off during Borderlands 1 and, without telling you, completely redid the art <laughs> style from a more, um, I mean this in, in a not-mean way, generic Unreal Engine 3 look uh-huh. to the very distinctive comic book style that we see now. Um, and then they just showed it to you and kind of, kind of that, that's, a uh, what, what happened was, um, uh, it wasn't the whole art team. It was actually one of my partners, one of the owners of Gearbox, Brian Martell, who, uh, you know, he, there was a moment when he was struggling with, and all of us were struggling with this, this idea that I'm about to say, which is that there was sort of a mismatch between the style that the game was actually being built in. Yeah and the style that the game was kind of supposed to be. We didn't know what that style looked like, but right. we all, the, the design of the game and the universe begged for a certain flavor that we just hadn't discovered yet. Um, and invention's one of those weird things where you can't, you can't really predict it. And you can, you can kind of know you need to do something, but until you actually invent it, you don't know what it is, but you know that <laughs> something needs to exist there. So chicken so and the egg. It's yeah, it's a really odd, odd situation. So Brian uh, took personal responsibility for that dissonance that that uh, you know permeated, I think, the entire studio. Um, and you know what's neat about a game is it's complex enough where even if like oh there's this dissonance between the the visual style and the game design and the story and all that. Uh, there's there's this distance there, but because I'm, I'm my responsibility is this, I can focus on this or that. I can focus on that. Well, Brian, you know, in his seat as you know, he's he's basically the creative head of our studio, and um, uh, he's one of my partners, one of the owners of the studio. He is an artist, and he he took personal responsibility for that that particular dissonance and that, that the, the the discomfort that it caused, and uh, set himself out to solve it. So and so so he he got, he gathered together a couple of guys and they started tinkering with they started exploring possibilities and it was it was when they you know probably a couple of days into them tinkering that someone else came to me and said hey Randy have you seen what what Carl's doing you know and Carl was one of the guys that Brian was exploring this with so I'm like uh, what do you mean isn't isn't Carl doing what he is everyone expects him to be doing <laughs> and they're like oh uh maybe you should talk to brian you know, oh. like you know and so i went to brian and i and i asked him like what's going on dude and he's like listen that you know reminded me of the dissonance yes i agree and he's like i think i can solve it i need to i need to dig in and, and try I, there's no way that we could use the english language isn't sufficient for us to describe what i see mm-hmm. so i have to actually build something to show what I see and I need some other people to help me do that. And so, um, we agreed that he would spend a few weeks, like three weeks and that he'd have like five guys yep. and that they would basically make a prototype. So do you think that the game would have been as successful if it had retained its original look? Man, I don't know. I, it, I know it's know, an impossible question, but I'm... I'll tell you the game design is really strong. Um, I, th- I think that the look makes it very distinctive, which creates advantages. Um, it helps people recognize... When you see a screenshot or an image of Borderlands, you know it's Borderlands, yes. and you know it's nothing else. So I think that there's some advantages there. I also think that by making that change, it, it then amplified some of the other things in the design and in the, in the, the way that the, the story we were telling to let the character that it wanted to be come through in a much higher volume. Um, 
and and, I, and you could even see that momentum carrying even further with as you play the DLC, for example. Um, but but I th- the game design is very strong, you know. And I also know that on, you know as a counterpoint, there's there's still some people out there that. Like they'll they'll go you know they'll go to a store and the, the guy will like oh dude you like shooters and you like role playing games you should look at this and the customer who's more muggle like like yeah but it looks kind of like a cartoon and the guy's like just forget about that just try it and trust me you'll like it you know so there is some other part where you know there's almost a ceiling yeah. caused by that so I really it's almost impossible for me to um, know where that you know if that's a coin flip where where which whether that would come up heads or tails on that particular question but i my my gut says it helped uh a lot with with it um but uh but i i can make i can make reasonable and strong arguments that a realism version uh could have also been very successful yeah borderlands definitely i mean it, the game touched a nerve when it came out in a good way. You know, it managed to just grab onto people and not let go. So um, what I'm curious of is at what point during the development did you guys realize that, that you had something, that that's, that that's what the effect on people was going to be? Pretty early, actually. Um, you know, you, <laughs> when, when we first got some of the procedural weapon generation system stuff hooked up, and we're proving it, you know, testing and playing with it. It's just, I mean, we, have, we, I think we still even have it in Borderlands 2, the, the P key. You press on, on, in our developer build, uh, developing on our, you know, workstations, mm-hmm. you press the P button on the keyboard, and it'll just spit out a randomly, a procedurally generated weapon huh. using the procedurally generated software. This is just like a shortcut that I think Jimmy just coded up one day. I'll just, uh, I've got all the pieces now. I need to, now I need to, to manifest one of the, I need to create a result and manifest it into the world. I'll just associate that with the P key. And, you know, for pistol, I think is why it was P. Yeah, yeah. Make pistol, you know. <laughs> and, like, like you know, you first get in there and you you press it and you see it's like, oh, cool. It, all the pieces work and, you know, the, the stat, their stats, cool. And then you press it again and you start spamming <laughs> weapons all over the world. And you're like, and you're just, you, you know, we're spending... You know, two hours went by, and all we did was just look at stats and gear that we just spawned ourselves on the floor, and we realized, oh shit, we're onto something. You know, so very, very early, um, that that was that was pretty clear. So I've just got a couple more questions for you. Um, it, do you guys ever worry that that at Gearbox that you have too many projects going on at once? And and what I mean by that is, you guys, uh, in a in a bid to get it right, which you almost always do. You you guys delay a lot and and your your dev cycles are pretty long. Do you ever think, uh, you know, if you ever did you ever consider scaling it back and maybe just focusing more on one or two things? Time you always you guys yeah. always seem to have three or four or more things cooking at any given time. Okay, so I'll comment on the multiple project thing, and I'll also I also want to comment on the the timing. You know, one of the weird kind of side effects of this industry is sometimes we want to sometimes something motivates communicating about a game. Um, uh, earlier in its life cycle, uh, and like announcing it or whatever, yeah. And something motivates that, and once that happens, then the 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 natural next question is when does it come? Um, and you know, we work, we tend to, we don't, we want to be developers, we don't want to be publishers, and the publishers are amazing. They care so much about what they do, so they're they're in the best seats for that. But because they're they're all they all tend to be publicly traded, and they all have. Um, shareholder expectations. They, they, there's that, and then there's just the way the market works. 
they always need to put in a, a either a, a, a year or a quarter or a date, yeah. you know? And so, you know, what happens is you, when you start a project, you actually kind of make, you kind of go into it with this kind of understanding of where, where you're going to be flexible and where you're going to be inflexible. And it's usually along the vectors of how much money can I spend? How much time am I going to spend? And what is the, what is the goal from a vision or a scope or quality point of view? Like, what is it I'm trying to build? So what am I trying to build? How much am I going to spend on building to build it? And how long am I going to take? And on one of these points, you tend to choose that you can, you have to be inflexible. So some projects, date is inflexible. Like if you're going to make a game based on a movie that's going to come out day and date with the movie, the date is inflexible. And if your date is inflexible, then what you do is you adjust the scope, the quality, the, the design, the nature of the game, or you adjust its budget. Usually both. Mm -hmm. You adjust both in order to make sure you make that date. If you're going to be inflexible on budget, you need to be willing to adapt your, um, your scope, your quality, or your schedule. If you're going to be inflexible on your vision, then you have to be willing to adapt both your budget and your schedule. Makes sense. So for some of the games, I think our biggest and best games, the, the, we've bet on a goal and we've chosen to be inflexible on the vision, which means that schedule and budget are going to be flexible, um, which means that if you've talked about the game and the powers that exist, the nature of the machine inserts dates into the equation, <laughs> um, then that an expectation is set. So, right. but, but if you were actually going to be flexible on that because you're committing to your vision, those, the schedule might change. Right. So, you know, so like if you look at, um, like Borderlands two, for example, we didn't announce a date at all until we had it Yep, and we nailed it and it's coming. Um, aliens, uh, that, game was announced the, a long the, time ago the press release that announced that that game would exist uh was put out to the world before we had written the first line of code <laughs> which is you know it, it, when it when it ships the actual length of development is about the same as every original game we've built it's just that it takes time to bake and to yeah. figure things out and so it's actually no different in terms of its development cycle, but it appears to be really long because of that, the press release that happened way early and all along the way, you know, there's like, Oh, they, you know, they're going to put a date and, and uh, there's ever actually never been a date until we recently announced a date. There's been years or guide, there's been guidance basically. Yeah, but yeah. Gui- we, when we hear guidance though, we don't hear the word guidance and we don't parse the word guidance. What we hear instead is, ah, that's the date. Yep. Put it on a calendar. Yeah. And, and there's never actually been a day date. There's been like a year or a season um, uh, that's been offered as guidance. Um, so maybe our la- maybe our industry needs to mature so that there's a language uh, both that we can communicate to guys like you mm-hmm. and that guys like you can communicate to the world, which says, okay, this project is going to be inflexible on date, so you can count on this. Yes. Or this project is, is going for a vision. Here's the guidance they've given us for date, but because it's going on vision, we'll see what happens. You know, and, and I, I don't know how to, what shorthand can be created to help communicate that, but that does create some distance. So that's a comment on the, the, the timing issue. Um, in different, different projects, if you look through our entire history, you can see examples where we've appeared to, sh- to move our dates and you could see other examples where we've uh, been like, you could set your clock to what we're doing. Yeah. And, and it depends on what the commitment of that game is. Now on the other um, 
the other uh, point, which is multiple projects. Um, we've done we've done both at our at our current scale um, and our in our ambition. It's, there's this weird kind of thing. On one hand, we feel quality at our studio at these moments in a project when we can rally a mass of people around something. So there's a lot of focus and quality and performance advantages that happen when we kind of focus. On the other hand, there's a different kind of um, um, both creative and technical efficiency that comes when we have multiple things going on. Um, there are lots of aspects of development that use the same pieces of stuff, whether right. it's technology or tools or whatever, uh, no matter what game you're making. Uh, to, and, and, and if we have, if we can amortize that across multiple projects, we can actually be more efficient and we can make better games with the same amount of money or even less money. And that's, that's our real goal is the same amount of games creatively. If you work on the same thing for a long period of time, you could start to get stale and, and, Very true. and burned out. Um, we, so we get, we get creative and emotional advantages from having lots of things going on. Um, also logistically, the phases of development are such where at different phases of development, there's a different kind of efficiency and quality that comes from a different number of people. So in pre-production or actually in idea phase, you want like just a handful of guys, two, three, like when you're building your concept, just two, three guys are good enough to develop a concept. Then when you're in pre-production and you're exploring the concept, you know, your team grows to a dozen to 25 people. Mm -hmm. When you, Build prototypes. Depending on the complexity of a prototype, you can get you can get a little larger than that. When you're when you're in full production, you know, you can like I think at its peak between the internal staff on Borderlands Two and external people, there's probably a moment when there were over 300 people wow. working on Borderlands Two. Now imagine if if we had one project in development, and the optimal thing at the very beginning was to have five people, mm. and the optimal thing at peak production is to have 300 people. And then in post-production, again, you want to get down to like your 30-man launch team. And then that actually shrinks to like a 16-man, a you know, 15, 16-man kind of live team. Imagine if you had one project. What do you do? You got to, you got to, you either, you're going to do one of two things. You're either going to be hiring a lot of people, which at that point are, you know, you're going to start small and you're going to be hiring a lot of people. And the people you're hiring, they've never worked with each other. There's no cohesiveness. There's no, you know, we get tremendous advantages because we don't have really any turnover. So everybody at Gearbox knows each other's strengths and weaknesses. We leverage each other's strengths. We, we anticipate and mitigate each other's weaknesses. And it's just sort of automatic. And I could say, I could say, I don't even have to say, I can make, I can look at Brian and give him a look and he can get what would have to be paragraphs, pages, volumes of information for someone that I've never met before that I'm trying to communicate with. Just a single look carries all that information. And, and, and this is true all over our studio. So, so I don't like the idea of like hiring and firing. Yeah, inefficient churn. That's just, it's just the worst possible way to make quality games or make quality anything in my opinion. But the other side sucks too, where like, okay, so let's say I'm not going to hire or fire. So where, where's the line? How many people do I have? Do I have the, the, the maximum at peak? Which means that for these huge parts of development, I have these gaps where there's a whole lot of people that we're spending money on that are not creating anything of value and that really just have to sit around and twiddle their thumbs. Or do we put the line below peak so that we may be a little heavy when we're in pre-production, but we're light when we need to be have stronger, you know, and then yeah. the games aren't as good. So 
having multiple projects allows us to kind of do this kind of thing where one project's at peak while another project's in pre-production and do this dance back and forth. And that, that's really awesome. It also allows us, and I think this is really neat too, to amortize these kind of common things. And an analogy, which kind of helps this be really simple to understand is imagine you're building a building, like a, a physical structure. Okay. Now, everything that's going to be part of that building, the, the mortar, the metal, all that stuff, that's all going to stay with the building. And all, whatever that costs, that's, that goes into the building. But there's a whole lot of other stuff you need. You need the trucks that you got to put all that stuff in to drive it there. You need hard hats for all the workers. You need scaffolding to, to erect around it. You need um, drills and, and, and cranes and, and, and hammers and screwdrivers and all this stuff. Imagine if you had to rationalize the cost of all of that stuff just within the building. It's going to cost, you know, let's say X. Now, if you can make three buildings that all use the same stuff, the value of that stuff then is spent once. Or you could even buy more. Let's say, let's right. say you had this, if you had the same budget, you can get three times better stuff or three times more stuff. Or you could just do it once and you're being more efficient so that each game could have more of the budget of each building for example, could 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 uh, could have the things that are exclusively for that building. So maybe the walls could have been better, and the floors could be better, and Makes the sense. stuff, the glass could be better, and the stuff on the outside of the building and the inside of the building could be better because we're spending less of that particular building's budget on all the tools and all the scaffolding and all the infrastructure. And there's there's a I can't underestimate the value of that. And there's so many, and there's, it's it's not just physical stuff when you're making software. It's it's institutional knowledge as well. And uh, that's uh, very, very valuable. Yeah, so, all right, a couple quick rapid fire ones to finish up. Do you ever think about Prax War, the very first game from your, when you uh, first left Gearbox, you started a development studio called yeah. Rebel Boat Rocker, and that game uh, ended up uh, never coming out. Do you yeah. ever think about that game? Yeah, every once in a while, we've got a poster for it that hangs up in our office. Every one of the owners of Gearbox worked on that game, Brian Martell and Stephen Ball and a lot of other people were at Rebel Boat Rocker. Um, you know, I don't think that exploring that again is going to matter because what what we were doing there what we wanted to do there, what our ambition was from a design point of view. Um, Bungie did it with Halo. <laughs> they did it. They did it, and that game exists, and now we get to have it. And so I don't, I don't feel like all, the things we wanted to do there are no longer uncharted territory. Right. When we dreamed it up and were am ambitious about it, there was no Halo in the world, and there was no game that kind of blended the, the, the put, put the pieces together the way Halo ended up doing. And that's what Praxwar Prax wanted to be. And as Halo existed, um, it no longer became useful or relevant to, to do that. I do, there's some of the story things that I kind of liked that have, you know, some of them have actually appeared in other games that we've made. And there's other ideas that have kind of, you know, appeared. But the core, you know, from a, a, a top line kind of nexus of story style and design uh, Halo did it, so we d we don't need to. And what game are you most excited for this holiday? Well, um, I'm gonna expose my gamer nerdiness. The Do game it. I'm most uh, I, I'd have to double check the launch date because I was a little fuzzy on it. I think it's coming in December, but it might be coming in January. It's uh, Nino Kuni, which ah, is yes. the uh, Studio Ghibli inspired level five game. Uh, man, that there's something about that that just is really attractive to me. Um, and so, yeah, I know that's not at all mainstream. Um, but, uh, but I, 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 I can't wait for that game. Uh, obviously, you know, I've got, I've got my, you know, we got Borderlands 2 launching and I've got my office set up at home with, uh, three PCs all networked together. We're going <laughs> to, my wife and my kid and I are going to just 
we're going to devour the retail final. We're waiting for it to be live. <laughs> awesome. Um, we've all played a bit of it. You know, I, I've played, obviously played it <laughs> more, more hours than I can possibly articulate. But my wife and my son have, have been exposed to it very little, um, but they, they have been exposed to it. But we're, as a family, we're going to do it all together. Uh, and I can't wait. And we're going to have so much fun together. My son can't wait. My wife can't wait. And, and it's, we're going we're gonna to get into that. And then, you know, I'm looking forward to the other blockbusters, too. I, I, like, I like those. But I think, like... Well, Nino Cooney is a good answer. Dude, that, good that answer. game is so magical to me. It's like, you know, and, and it's on some levels, it's, there's, it's familiar enough. So, you know, it's, it's, there's some simplicity to it. But like the way they manage the overworld and just the art direction and the style. And I just, I, I don't know it's all of what it's going to have in store for me. And I think there's some, some you know, wonder there as well that I'm looking forward to. So and, I, I hope it fulfills my dreams. And the very last question I have for okay. you, because we have gone an hour and 11 minutes. It's been an awesome, it's like... Uh, you asked me a question. It's like inside the actor's studio yeah, here. I love this. Out of me. In fact, I think this is the podcast this week. I don't even think I need to do any other part of a show. This <laughs> there is going to be go. great. So uh, I've got to ask you, Randy, because you're the great guy to ask this question okay. to. What's the one thing that the next-gen consoles need to do that would make you as a developer the happiest? Whether it's a service or a piece of technology. Just, I, you know, I, are we I, in Dreamland? Or are we in... Uh, about dream, quick Dreamland, quick reality. Because I know we got, we got to move on to... Uh, we got more you know, to do it, with you today. It but. could be reality. Um, I think the thing that would be the miracle that is totally possible um, if, if, if these guys... Uh, actually talked about it and and realized why it would be a good thing i would love to see sony and microsoft team up (laughs) i think that if sony was responsible for the consumer electronics and microsoft was responsible for the software and those guys figured out how to ally together to have a playstation box playstation xbox (laughs) x station and and that there's some way to to deal with you know certification and to deal with um, licensing and all that so that uh, those guys are both happy. Imagine imagine if the combined resources, power, capability... Development studios. Just the combined... The combined result of those, of those two working together would take the industry to a whole new... Le- like, there's not a single person on the planet that... Like every single person on the planet that's ever thought about entertainment of any form would have to get that. Yes. They would have to. That you just can't live and not need that. <laughs> You'd have to have that. And it would be a multiplier. It wouldn't just be the sum of what they're both doing. It would be a multiplier. It would transform everything. And uh oh my God, that'd be incredible. We would reach everyone. What an amazing world that could be in. And and what's what's preventing that, of course, is is a combination of 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 Pride and 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 some combination of, of competition, um, the nature of their businesses, just the conversations are difficult to have candidly because they 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 have to remain suspicious of one another, <laughs> and, um, but if they could somehow, if someone high enough at both companies could somehow talk with one another candidly enough, so they weren't weren't in, uh, actually imagined the possibility of a, uh, an ally, alliance there. And, and, and put their, what the big issues were on the table so that, and found a way to work through those. So, that, okay, if we work through these big issues, we'll trust that the organization can get through all the little details. Oh, my God, that would be incredible. And then how about a little, how about a little a realistic thing? What's a, what's you don't a realistic think that's realistic? 
That's a, what's neat about that is it's not a technical problem. It's a human problem. Right. And which is totally which, solvable. Which is, no, those are worse than technical problems <laughs> they are in, in, in the some business ways. world. They are some ways, but they're, it's solvable. It's solvable. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I can't. Fair top, enough. I can't top that. Well, you are that. under. You already know all the answers, and you're under <laughs> NDA, so we probably should leave it there. So, Randy Pitchford, I want to thank you for. Uh, that was a, one of the best interviews for me that I've ever had. I hope oh, everybody wow. was entertained. An oh, hour I had fun. and I appreciated fifteen your minutes. Yeah. Uh, Borderlands Two, of course, releases on September 18th. It is going to be huge. It is. It's. It's co-op. It's. Uh, role playing and shooting and uh, all every fun thing pretty much merged into one game. You, you know, we we spent very little time talking about Borderlands, and I I I, I don't begrudge that. I thought I really enjoyed your questions and I really enjoyed chatting with you. But I think um, if there's one thing that I could um, share with you know your listeners, please do about it. Um, if you're a gamer like us, uh, there's never been anything we've ever done that we've put more personal passion and investment into. And I think as people play the game and, and see what we've done there, th there's no question this is the best thing Gearbox has ever produced. Well, and you and said yourself, this this game is for core gamers. It is not dumbed down for the mass market. With it, It's it, definitely it is, not targeting them, but if if you... I, we have not encountered anyone who's given it a shot that's had a bad time. Right. I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't mean yeah, it that way. Yeah, I just mean yeah. it, it is for you, listeners. It is for you. If the you're core a gamer, you, 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 we, you're who we're making the game for. So <laughs> we're making it for us, and uh, it's uh, we're having a blast. So September 18th is the big day. Pick up Borderlands 2. Uh, I guess if you pre-order at GameStop, you get the uh, the Slaughter Dome. Or creature sla creature yeah, slaughtered. Yeah, yeah. yeah and you, if you pre-order anywhere, you know, if you know you want the game already, you, I, you probably already pre-ordered it. If you haven't, you should because there's the we're giving away the first character DLC, which is the Mechromancer. Yes, and that's free if you pre-ordered. If you're part of the Premier Club, I was really excited that our publishing partner stepped up to that because that's that's going to be a ten dollar uh, DLC yeah. uh, for anyone that doesn't pre-order. And if you end up with the game and you play it, you're going to want. Like it, that, that's like, we're almost done with it. And it's that necromancers turned out so awesome. It's like, I'm so in love with that character. <laughs> so you just get it for free. If you already know you want the game, don't like, I just want as many people as possible to play our stuff. So I don't care that you're going to get it for free. I, I think that's awesome. Right. <laughs> and tune in to, uh, to IGN at midnight on Friday, September 14th. That'll be Thursday night slash Friday morning, 1201 AM Pacific time for the first review of Borderlands 2. Randy Pitchford, thanks for coming out. Let's go do Up at Noon now. Cool. All right. Thank you.